Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowick. Today, I am joined by Brandon Wolf. He is the Development Officer and Media Relations Manager for Equality Florida, where he supports initiatives to expand equality to all Americans and ensure future generations are free from discrimination in the workplace, housing, and healthcare, in addition to many other platforms. Brandon is a survivor of the Pulse nightclub massacre, where in the early morning hours of June 12, 2016, a domestic terrorist fired over 200 rounds of ammunition into the crowd inside the club, killing 49 people and injuring 53 more. Brandon, along with those in the club that night, were simply doing as millions in this country have been doing for generations, gathering on a Saturday night to enjoy each other's company and share a drink together. Despite that horrific evening he and so many others experienced, Brandon has moved forward to become a nationally recognized advocate for LGBTQ issues and gun violence prevention. Brandon found his passion for social change following the shooting at the Pulse nightclub. He's a frequent contributor on state and national media outlets, having published opinions in the USA Today, CNN Digital, and Orlando Weekly. He's brought awareness to the issues in HuffPost, Metro Weekly, and has appeared on MSNBC, CNN, and multiple other news outlets. Brandon received the Voice for Equality Award at the 2018 Orlando Gala. In addition, Brandon volunteers with the Drew Project, an organization he founded following the shooting at Pulse Nightclub that supports LGBTQ student groups and provides college funding for future leaders. He lives in Orlando. Brandon Wolf, welcome to Breaking Protocol. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Bob. Great to be here. There's so much I want to cover with you today, including the presidential election. But before we get to that, along with many other topics we're going to talk about, I want to go back to those early morning hours of June 12, 2016. You know, I'm not sure there are many LGBTQ Americans who don't know exactly where they were when they heard the news, or maybe for those of us that are a little older, the confusion and despair that we felt when we turned on the early morning Sunday news shows to the breaking news about that shooting. But unlike those of us who experienced this terrorist attack through media, you experienced it through a personal lens, being that you were in that building when those first shots rang out. Take us back to that moment and share with us what you can recall when you first realized that you and your friends were in danger. I think it's important to put Pulse Nightclub in in, in context. Um, Pulse Nightclub was the first club I went to in the city of Orlando. Uh, and on top of that, for, for most of the folks in Central Florida and really for LGBTQ people across the globe, um, Pulse sort of embodied that idea of what a safe space really is. Pulse was the place where you could hold hands with someone you had a crush on without looking over your shoulder. Pulse was the place where you could wear whatever you wanted to without, you know, fearing some homophobic slur or some some evil glance behind your back. Pulse was a place where we could be authentically ourselves. It was a safe haven for all of us. And and June 12th of 2016, those early hours really were the most ordinary 
of moments for us. Um, I, after a long week of work, I went with my best friends, Drew and Juan, for a drink. We piled into an Uber. We picked the club that was closest. We'd been to Pulse together hundreds of times. Uh, and it was just exactly as it always was. The line was long outside. Uh, there was a drag queen at the front door taking my money to get inside. Uh, the, the building was busy. The music was loud. We went to the same bartender we always went to. We ordered the same drinks we always ordered. And, uh, and, and we really were free in that space. We were exactly as we always were. I remember we went to the patio in the back of the club in our usual spot underneath the stars. And uh, my best friend Drew had a, a master's degree in clinical psychology. And when he had a drink or two, he would give you some free therapy sessions. And, <laughs> and I remember him draping his long arm around my shoulder and he talked about life and he talked about love. Uh, and he said, you know what I wish we did more often was tell each other that we love each other. Um, I remember a lot about that night. A lot of it is very vivid. I remember just after two o'clock in the morning, stepping into the bathroom to wash my hands. I remember how cold the water was from the faucet. I remember for some reason, a plastic cup sitting on the edge of the sink, looking like it might teeter off. I remember the first sounds of gunshots, the confusion, the panic. I remember thinking maybe it was a music malfunction. And I remember the dozen or so people that crowded into the bathroom, the looks of, of fear and despair on their faces. I remember the second round of gunshots starting, unrelenting gunfire. And I remember this debate about whether we should try to run or hide uh, and the decision to lock arms with these 12 people that I'd never met before and make a run for it. I remember willing myself not to look left or right um, but simply staring at this sliver of light in the back of the club, hoping and praying that I would make it to safety. Um, I remember the feeling of relief when I burst into the night air and, and had a chance to call my parents. And I also remember what heartbreak felt like when I learned that just as they always were, Drew and Juan, my very best friends, my chosen family, my brothers, were standing in the middle of the dance floor underneath a disco ball wrapped in each other's arms when that man fired 19 rounds into the two of them and killed them both. There's a lot that I remember about that night. There's a lot that I remember about the aftermath. But for me, the, the event will always be marked by the invasion of the space that we'd fought so hard to create for people like us. I grew up in a rural town in Oregon, and I never felt like I could be authentically me. I never felt like I could live all of my identity um, I never found that that chosen family that all of us search for for much of our childhood and adult lives. I found that in Orlando. I found that at Pulse Nightclub. And, and that man, full of hatred, armed with a weapon of war, stole that from me. After you escaped that evening and you were outside of the club, the terror continued for many hours. Yeah. Uh, it didn't just end in, in, in a few minutes. It went on and on and on. There were hostages that were held inside the club, assuming probably most of those also he ended up killing in the process. Where did you go when you left the club? And did you did you hang around the area, generally speaking, and and wait for information on your friends? So I think in order to answer the question, I have to paint a picture for you of what it was like in the very first moments after the shooting broke out. It feels to me now like it was moving in slow motion, but I know everything happened very quickly. There were people 
sprinting in every direction from the club. There were people climbing over fences, desperately trying to get out of the area. There were people screaming. There was blood. There were police cars everywhere, uh, heavily armed officers directing people where to go. And in the back of it all, almost like this eerie soundtrack, was this relentless gunfire, this bang, 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 bang. And so when I made it out of the club and onto the sidewalk, the first thing that I tried to do was go back inside because I realized that I had I had left the building without my best friends. But at the time I was I was on the sidewalk with an ex-boyfriend of mine and he, you know, he physically moved us down the block, insisting that we could not stay. We we had to get to safety. So we moved down the block, we went around the corner and moved our way toward the hospital. I think our our hope was that if we learned any news about Drew and Juan, it would be outside of the emergency room. So we sort of set up our initial base camp outside of outside of the hospital. And at one point, I remember there were concerns that there may be a second shooter inside the hospital. There were reports of of something going on, and and the police showed up at the hospital as well. They were shouting at people to get on the ground, put your hands on your head. They were, you know, charging in heavily armed again in in riot gear with shotguns. Wow. And so this panic ensued for, you know, more than just a few minutes. I mean, this panic ensued for a half an hour to an hour. And it's important to remember that at that time, there was still an ongoing hostage situation, as you mentioned, inside the club. So we're dialing and calling friends who are inside, their phones are ringing over and over and over again. Um, but police had not yet made it inside of the building. It actually took them over three hours to get inside the club and they had to use a battering ram and explosive charges to breach the outside wall to finally burst in uh, to the side of the club where the bathrooms were. So as we made our way further and further away from the club, as, as the police moved us, um, there was still an ongoing hostage situation inside the building. We did eventually set up a base camp about three blocks away at a 7-Eleven in, inside the parking lot. And that's where we started calling friends and family to make sure that they knew the news. So following that evening, an investigation began. And obviously this played out for most of us in the media who were following the events closely. Were you ever involved in the investigation as far as dialogue with the police? And how often, if so, did they speak with you? Yeah, so they did speak with everyone who was directly impacted by the shooting. Any and all mental and financial and physical health resources uh, that were available to survivors or families of victims were gatekept by the FBI. So in order to access those resources, you actually had to open a case file with the FBI. You had to see an agent. You had to share your story. They put out these little paper maps of the club, and you had to draw X's on where you stood and where you walked and where you had a drink and what you saw. Um, and so I went through that entire process. But outside of my initial interview with the FBI, um, I was not contacted again by police, and I, I didn't have any any further conversations with them about it. You know, the terrorist attack in the club that night, that gentleman had enough ammunition. I'm sorry, I shouldn't refer to him as a gentleman. That's incorrect. That monster had enough ammunition to survive a gunfight on a battlefield. And in fact, he did, as you indicated, he held law enforcement at bay for several hours before they were finally able to engage with him and they ultimately killed him inside that club. Now, there are millions of Americans 
who feel the Second Amendment is misinterpreted for the purposes of the commercialization of firearms. I know you've been involved in some gun regulation advocacy. What has entailed you uh, to do that? And do you feel you support responsible gun ownership changes that could be made effectively in our legislation? Yeah. Well, I want to answer the second part of your question first, which is, you know, are there changes that can be made while also respecting the Second Amendment rights that each of us is afforded? And I think the the answer is clearly yes. And, And we know that not just because of my opinion, not just because of, you know, some talking points we've been fed, but we know that because we we know that common sense gun safety reforms have actually worked across the country. And the goal is not to disarm uh, lawful or, or responsible gun owners. The, the goal is to ensure that dangerous people, people who have no business owning firearms, um, don't get their hands on them, right? So, so the answer to that question is yes, it's, it's possible, it's the right thing to do, and we also know that it works. I think the, the point that you brought up about the ammunition and, and the volume of ammunition that that man was allowed to carry is a really apt one to make. And and I want people who are listening to the podcast to know that this moment is the embodiment of what so many of us have been talking about with the holes in our gun safety legislation as it stands today. The man who perpetrated this crime bought his assault weapon legally. He bought a weapon designed for combat that serves no other purpose than to kill as many people as possible in the shortest amount of time possible. He then turned around and bought all the ammunition he could pack into his car. And where did the the gun shop draw the line? When he also tried to buy Kevlar body armor so that he could withstand a shootout with the police. And on top of all of those things, on top of the fact that he was able to purchase these weapons legally, that he was, was able to carry out boatloads of ammunition. On top of that, he had already been flagged by law enforcement as a problem. On multiple occasions, the FBI had indicated that he was too dangerous to get on an airplane. A man who was too dangerous to get on an airplane because we are concerned he may uh, inflict violence on those people inside the airplane or worse, should not have access to a weapon that is designed for a battlefield. That just doesn't make any sense. And on top of that, yeah, just icing on the cake, he, you know, he, his, the people in his life had complained on multiple occasions that they felt he was violent in nature. He had been accused of domestic violence. He had partners at work that asked to be switched off of his beat because he, he had violent speech and violent thought. And he talked about bringing guns to work and inflicting harm on other people. This was a man who quintessentially embodies the kind of thing we're talking about when we're talking about gun safety regulation. He was a dangerous person that we'd already identified as dangerous, and yet we still allowed him to walk into a gun shop, buy an assault weapon and all the ammunition he could carry, and carry out this act of hatred. So let me go through a little bit of statistics with you and then get your response to this. The subject matter of guns, as you well know, is very polarizing in both the private sector and in our government sector, in the political sector. And as a result of these mass shootings that we continue to experience in the United States, 
they result in very high anxiety political debate. In fact, Mm -hmm. there isn't even a general consensus today on what the definition of a mass shooting is. But for the purpose of this conversation, I'm going to use this definition by the Gun Violence Archive. It defines a mass shooting as firearm violence resulting in at least four people being shot at roughly the same time and location, excluding the perpetrator. Now, using that definition, there has been 2,128 mass shootings in this country since 2013. That is roughly one per day. Gun violence in the U.S. results in tens of thousands of deaths and injuries annually. And in 2017 alone, the most recent year for which we have data available, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the National Center for Health Statistics reports that deaths reached their highest level since 1968 with almost 40,000 people died from firearms in the U.S. And we have more mass shootings than any country on earth. If you compare 22 of the top economically prosperous nations in the world, the U.S. gun-related homicide rate is 25 times higher than all those countries combined. Now, with that said, mass shootings accounted for less than 2% of all homicides in the U.S. between 2000 and 2016. And this is an argument that gun rights advocates use all the time. So depending on how one spends these statistics impacts one's perception of the severity of gun violence in our country. What is your response to these statistics moving forward? And how do we address this as a country because it is so polarizing? Yeah. Well, listen, it's polarizing because there are people with with a vested interest in ensuring that we don't reach some sort of consensus on issues of gun violence, right? And I'm, I'm specifically talking about gun manufacturers, the, the lobby that they employ to ensure that we keep things as, as lax as possible in DC and state legislatures and beyond. I, I firmly believe that that's why we have a polarized conversation about gun safety regulation. When you ask people, when you sit down at a table and you talk about the future that they want for their children, When you ask them about common sense gun safety reforms, when I ask my dad, if you had to take a background check, does it not make sense that our neighbor should have to take a background check before they purchase a gun? Does it not make sense that the guy down the block should also have to take a background check before he buys a gun? Would that make you feel more comfortable sending your children to their house for a play date, knowing that they went through the same process to purchase that firearm that you did? When you really break things down, to the common sense elements of gun safety regulation, you find a whole lot of common ground with people. But that's not the conversation that we're having when we inject NRA talking points, when we inject uh, you know, the gun lobby and gun manufacturer talking points into things. So to take it back to the statistics that, that you were talking about and, and how do we break it down and, and what's my response to people who maybe view the numbers in a different way. First of all, We should be absolutely embarrassed and appalled by the prevalence of gun violence in this country. We should not be comfortable saying, well, it's just a fraction of, or well, it could be worse. In the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, we can do better than saying, well, it could be worse. So that's number one. 
Number two is let's divorce ourselves from how we parse the statistics and look at two different studies that were done. These were nonpartisan studies done by universities here in the United States. And they found that states that passed a slate of common sense gun safety regulations targeted at ensuring that dangerous people do not get their hands on guns. What did they find? States that passed those slate of common sense regulations saw homicides drop by 30 to 35 percent. Not just gun homicides, not just some, you know, some abstract number, but these are homicides. They saw the homicide rate drop by 30 to 35 percent when we did not hand violent, dangerous people a firearm. At the end of the day, it comes down to this. Gun safety regulations aren't going to stop people from harming other people. Gun safety regulations are not going to stop people from trying to kill other people. But guns, firearms, boatloads of ammunition, those things make killing someone else much easier. They turn situations that might be harmful, that might be damaging, they make them fatal. So if we can take common sense approaches, if we can cut through all of the the talking points and the million dollar ad buys and talk to people directly, about what kind of world they want their children to grow up in, I believe that we'll find common ground around these very common sense reforms that could move us into a space where we're not saying, well, it could be worse. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the activity of million-dollar ad buys, because a lot of those million-dollar ad buys are funded by the political and the religious community. What was your response to those communities after the shooting. It's interesting to learn when you're in a situation like Pulse to learn how the world is digesting your tragedy. So on the inside, it's sort of like being inside of a hurricane where in your four foot radius, it's like the world is moving in slow motion. But outside of that, you can see the tempest raging, right? And to be honest with you, there was about a week after the shooting where I didn't watch cable news at all. I didn't digest any of the national dialogue about what was happening in the wake of Pulse. I was watching local news. I was listening to the people around me who were directly impacted. And what I saw was community coming together. What I saw was Central Florida rejecting hatred. What I saw was people demanding that we be better moving forward than we have been in the past, that we honor the 49 people who lost their lives with action. That didn't necessarily look like what cable news outlets were talking about. They were boiling things down to how Pulse might impact the 2016 election. What was Hillary Clinton saying? What were Donald Trump's tweets supposed to mean? Um, But what I saw on the ground in my interactions with other people in the community and between people inside of our community was simply an understanding that in order to move forward, we were going to have to get beyond the things that make us different. And so I attended events and press conferences alongside religious leaders in our community, religious leaders who just weeks or months earlier had not been friends of the LGBTQ community who had not been friends on issues of gun violence prevention, but who set aside those differences to sit down with us after Pulse and to say, we were wrong. We treated you unfairly. We were disrespectful and we know we can do better. Tell us how we can do better for you. Tell us how we can be a part of the healing of this community. When I think about the way that Orlando healed in the aftermath of Pulse, the way we were able to sit down with members of 
of the religious and the faith communities, the way we were able to sit down with people who might disagree with us politically on some of these issues, including gun violence prevention. When I think about our ability to get beyond those things, to sit at a table and to say, what kind of community do we want to build for the next generation of people and to ensure that something like this never happens again? I see that as a a blueprint, a microcosm of what's possible right now. If America was able to move beyond the sound bites, the tweet-sized nuggets, the million-dollar ad buys, sit down across the table from each other and say, what do we want this country to look like for the next generation of Americans? Well, I certainly hope that impression that the political and religious communities navigated through realizing that the community is better served together than being divided is a continuance of what is going on in the world today. I, and I, I don't want I don't want you to get me wrong. I want to be clear that this is a journey. We did not reach a finish line in the weeks after Pulse. We just started to have the conversation. We've continued to have the conversation, and we still don't always agree. We still have many of the same challenges and, and conversations and dialogues, fierce dialogues inside of our community that every community has. But what I find refreshing is that when things begin to spin out of control, when we begin to run to our corners that we're being told to run to, I always find a way seemingly to pull us back to the center by saying, remember how we got through this before. Remember what we decided we were going to do. Remember when we put rainbows in every window, when we painted sidewalks, when we said Orlando strong, Orlando proud, those are the things that matter today. Let's find our way back there. And it's been a very powerful unifying force for us. So since the Pulse nightclub terrorist attack, you've become a notable advocate in the LGBTQ community, and you are currently the development officer and media relations manager for Equality Florida. You were involved in advocacy work prior to June 12, 2016. What are the initiatives that are your highest priority today? Oh, where do I start? Um, (laughs) I live in Florida, so the list is very, very long. Uh, Obviously, we've got our eyes on November 3rd. We have a huge election. And, uh, you know, as Florida goes, typically so goes the nation. Little known fact, I don't know. I don't know if folks are are tuning in and I know we're going to get there. But but well, that that brings me to a point. In a few short days, we're going to elect a person who will serve as the president of the United States for the next four years. And you are from Florida. So what is your perspective of the presidential campaign and what are you hearing on the ground in Florida? The, the little known fact that I want to share with your listeners is that there are actually only two Democrats in history who've ever taken the White House without the state of Florida. I don't know if I'm really in the mood to try for three out of three <laughs> on that. Uh, I'd like us to shore up Florida. And I think we really can. You know, my I think my opinion on the presidency in general wouldn't shock people. I, I would be surprised if it shocks people. Donald Trump has been an abject disaster for our country. I remember what Donald Trump's response was after Pulse. And so I'm not surprised by any of the things that he does. In the in the hours that followed the shooting at Pulse nightclub, Donald Trump was on Twitter congratulating himself for accurately predicting that there would be some sort of terrorist attack on US soil. He was patting himself on the back before we had even identified the bodies that were on the floor of that club. So for me, Donald Trump is, you know, 
not only the most dangerous and corrupt president we've ever had, he's personally offensive to me and to my community. He's waged an all-out assault on LGBTQ Americans from the beginning of his presidency. No matter how much he tries to roll Tiffany into Tampa for pride events, he can't fool us because we've lived the repercussions of his administration. You asked about Florida. I want to tell you that I have hope in Florida. Listen, we're, we're going to decide this election on the margins. In the state of Florida, about nine and a half million people voted in 2016, and Donald Trump won the state by 112,000 votes. We are the country's largest swing state, and we're decided by just this much. I'm holding my fingers very close together for those who can't see right. me. We are right. decided by just a hair. Um, at Equality Florida, we, we have targeted, we know in our universe, there are over 500,000 pro-equality voters, that's LGBTQ voters and their allies, who may not show up. And so we launched the country's largest state equality voter mobilization program on June 12th of this year on the four-year mark of Pulse to honor the victims uh, that lost their lives that day. And since then, we've worked day in and day out to try to mobilize those half a million pro-equality voters. We've made, I think, something like 40,000 phone calls. We've sent nearly a million text messages. We're doing the work on the ground. We're feeling a ton of energy. We've filled thousands of volunteer hours. I believe that LGBTQ voters and our allies are going to be the difference makers in Florida, but we can only do it with people's help. I do not want people to forget about Florida. I don't want people to look at polls and think that we have this in the bag. It is going to be a razor thin margin in the state of Florida. Donald Trump cannot win the presidency without this state. And so if you're thinking of where you can pitch in a few more dollars or a few more hours as we, we hit the finish line here, I encourage everyone to tune into what's happening in Florida. So Equality Florida, along with other equality organizations around the country, technically is a bipartisan organization. And there's another little known organization in the country called the Log Cabin Republicans, more simply defined gay Republicans. Do you have any interaction with this organization? And what justification do they have for continuing to support Donald Trump's discriminatory policies? I am not here, and it would not be fair for me to speak on behalf of the log cabin Republicans. I'm sure that I would mischaracterize them. <laughs> the last interaction I had with the log cabin Republicans was uh, a Sunday morning MSNBC spot, uh, me calling Rick Grinnell delusional because that's exactly what he is. He is delusional. I can't tell you what the justification for uh, supporting Donald Trump is right now. You don't think Rick Grinnell is intentional? I don't know that his delusion is not intentional. Um, I think that he probably had a really great time working for Donald Trump. He had an incredibly important position. Uh, he got to influence some policies, both here and abroad. And I'm sure that was a fabulous experience for him. But the reality that LGBTQ Americans are living today is one of nightmare under Donald Trump. Don't forget, this is an administration who banned transgender people from serving in the military, fired trans transgender service members who had made the sacrifice to serve their country. Don't forget, this is an administration who argued in court that adoption agencies should be able to ban same-sex couples from adopting children. Don't forget, this is the administration that on the four-year mark of Pulse, on June 12th of 2020, 
was in court trying to strip healthcare protections away from LGBTQ Americans. This is an administration who has been at war with LGBTQ people from the very beginning. Ignore the tacky LGBT for Trump t-shirts. Ignore the ridiculous rainbow flag sign waving he did. Ignore the Tiffany Trump strange, you know, pride event in Tampa. <laughs> Don't let your eyes deceive you. Believe what you're seeing. And that is that LGBTQ Americans are not thriving in Donald Trump's America. LGBTQ Americans are under assault in this administration, and there is absolutely no excuse for LGBTQ people to be supporting this president if they believe that LGBTQ people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. You know, my show is called Breaking Protocol. And when people like yourself who are involved in advocacy work, there are times when you will face huge hurdles and someone is inevitably going to respond to you by saying, but this is the way we've always done it, which draws me into a position of, I'm going to have to break some protocol here. <laughs> have you ever had to face that? And have you broken protocol in moving forward initiatives that you're passionate about? And how'd you go about doing it? Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a great question. Uh, and I'm glad that you raise it because I think we're at an inflection point in American history. I believe that we're at a moment where the country is acknowledging that the status quo isn't working. The same old, same old is not, is not lifting people up. That people are being left behind. We have staggering income inequality. We have an absolutely criminal, inhumane health I, I want to call it a healthcare system, but it's not a healthcare system. It's a health insurance system. And it is criminal. It is leaving people behind. It is leaving people to die. We have a system that is broken, that is not helping people across the country. And I think we're at a point where, where people of all stripes are acknowledging that to be true. You asked about breaking protocol and when I may have done that. I break protocol, I feel like, all the time. I think if you ask my boss, she would say I probably break <laughs> protocol more than I than I stick to protocol. But I think that's because I believe that disruption has to be part of the work that we're doing. If we're simply here to uphold the status quo, the systems, the structures that exist today, then we're not really advocating for change, are we? We're advocating for not rocking the boat. We're advocating for keeping things exactly as they are. And exactly as they are is just not working for people. I made a promise to Drew six days after the shooting at Pulse. We had a funeral service for him. His mom asked me to be a pallbearer that day. And I remember gripping the side of his casket in the aisle of the church so tightly that I thought my fingers would go numb. And it's because I didn't want to say goodbye to my best friends until I'd found the right words to do so. When we got to the front of the church, I looked down at his casket and I said, I will never stop fighting for a world that you would be proud of. We don't have that world yet. That is a world where everyone is treated with dignity and respect. It is a world where everyone is created equal. It's a world where Black Lives Matter is not a partisan political statement. It's simply an affirmation of what we truly believe. It's a world where all of us have the opportunity to thrive. And in order for us to make good on that promise, in order for us to deliver the world that my best friend would be proud of, the world that all of us can be proud of, 
we're going to have to break some protocols. We're going to have to change up some rules. We're going to have to rock the boat. We're going to have to challenge the status quo, even if sometimes the status quo comes from people on our own team. We are going to have to break some protocols if we're going to make the changes required to create a world where all of us, all of us can thrive. You know, there's no doubt that what happened at Pulse and what has happened since Pulse has impacted not just Florida, Orlando, the United States. It is. It was a true global impact. I lived in the Dominican Republic. I remember waking up that morning and turning my Sunday morning news shows on to the terror and the shock of what was still at that hour taking place in Orlando. And I remember very specifically finding out very quickly that it wasn't just the community of Orlando that was impacted. There were several Dominicans that died in the Pulse nightclub that night. And my husband had to go to work the next morning and directly deal with the international ramifications of that. So I remind people that what happens in the U.S., good and bad, impacts our global community. Everything we do, we are constantly being watched. I have to say it's been a true honor to have you on this show today. And I want to make sure before we wrap up here that if there's anything you'd like to address that I haven't I haven't covered here, I want to give you a moment to do that. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me on. It's um, It's been the honor of a lifetime over the last four and a half years to share a little bit of my own journey, um, but more so to share the journey of my best friends. Um, Drew and Juan were the best of us, and they taught me everything I know about loving yourself, about loving your community, about about loving and treating people with dignity and respect. Uh, and so I'm, I'm incredibly honored anytime I get an opportunity to share a bit of their story. One thing that I wanted to touch on before we go, and this is my fault because I changed the subject, um, but you asked about the initiatives that were really important to me right now. And I want to tell you about two. I think that when we approach the issues that we're facing in this country, whether it's gun violence, whether it's health care, whether it's income inequality, whether it's LGBTQ rights, when we approach these issues, we've got to do it in two ways. We've got to do it from the inside. We absolutely need policy change. We've got to advocate for policy change. We've got to we've got to shake up the infrastructures of power. We also need to do it from the outside. We need to build grassroots momentum. We need to change hearts and minds. So when I think about issues, for instance, like the LGBTQ civil rights movement here in the state of Florida and across the country, I think about the work that we're doing. First and foremost at Equality Florida, we're fighting for the policy changes. And we want the state of Florida to pass comprehensive non-discrimination policies for the LGBTQ community. We want LGBTQ people to be protected from discrimination in the state of Florida. And we're going to get it. We're going to continue to fight for it until we get it because it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, we, we understood and we acknowledged in the wake of Pulse that policy change alone wasn't going to cut it that chiseling away at the law wasn't going to change the way LGBTQ Floridians experience life here on the ground. So we launched the Safe and Healthy Schools Project. Uh, and I personally launched the Drew Project in honor of my best friend. And both of those uh, projects have the same goal, and that is to create spaces in schools 
where young people can just be who they want to be, love who they want to love, live how they want to live, explore their own identities without fear of violence, hatred, and retribution. So that's that's some of the work that we do. And at the Drew Project, I also wanted to create pathways so that future Drews, future Wands, future Me's uh, could have access to higher education, could see a path where they belong at seats of power. They belong at those tables where their voices can be heard. I think in order to create the change we want to see in all issues, in all walks of life, we have to accomplish both things. We've got to be willing to fight for the policy changes we deserve. We've got to be willing to do sit-ins. We've got to be willing to rally, to vote, to show up, to demand change from our elected officials, uh, and to ensure that they know that if they don't deliver on the things they promise, they don't deliver on the expectations of the people they represent, that we will remove them and put someone else in their place. And we've got to build grassroots power. We've got to mobilize and organize our communities. I've said from the beginning, the answer to the fear and the hate and the violence that we saw in the aftermath of Pulse was community. I saw it in the rainbow flags. I saw it in the hugs from strangers at the grocery store. I saw it everywhere. That was the answer to violence and fear and hatred at that time. And it's the answer to violence and fear and hatred at this time too. The answer to all of those things is community. If we can get the policy changes done on the inside and we can build the kind of community on the outside that it's going to require, I really think we can change this country and the world. So last two questions. When's the book coming out? And when? <laughs> <laughs> and when's Brandon Wolf's name going to be on a ballot? <laughs> Great questions. As it relates to the second question, you're going to have to ask me after November 3rd. I am like locked in here trying to get Joe Biden over the finish line, uh, trying to ensure we flip the Senate. Um, but come back to me on November 4th and we can we can talk about that. Uh, and then, you know, in terms of the book, it's funny, it's like you're you're on this trip with me. Um, I've been collecting my thoughts and and thinking about, you know, how I want to share them. So I guess all I can say on that front is stay tuned. Um, but when I have when I have things to share, I hope you'll have me back on to, to share it with, with folks who are listening. You know, once again, Brandon, thank you so much for joining me today here on Breaking Protocol with Bob Sadowick. And thank you for listening in. If you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it is available at your favorite online retailer or can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.